Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. This is being called one of the most important elections in U.S. history, but it might also be called one of the most problematical because of concerns about voter suppression. And that's just one of a number of leading issues that we're getting mixed messages about the state of the pandemic, foreign interference, climate change, the economy, and how militia groups may respond to the results. Investigative journalist Robert Henley who covers national and local politics, economics, and policy for Public Radio Salon, the chief leader and other news organizations, joins us again to discuss what's happening. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to our show now. Hi, Bob. Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me. This national election is different from any in living memory. What do you think we can expect in the days and weeks ahead in terms of how it's likely to play out? I think it's very important to uh, imagine ourselves as, say, like Nicaragua or any other nation where the institutions of democracy are not quite resolved or settled. Um, and it's important to see this as an election that is being held in over 3,000 counties that all have their own circumstance, both in terms of law and political climate. Do you think the press is missing that point? I do. And I think that it, we need to manage our expectations here. And so we, you know, historically, there's kind of been a traditional frame about this. And it plays into, just as, as, uh, as Trump has played into accentuating uh, conspiracy theories when it comes to public health, right? Um, spreading misinformation, and if the Stanford study is right, actually spreading COVID through his campaign rallies. Um, we, we see him doing the same thing by saying that any votes that are counted after election are illegal, are suspect. And, and because we have not educated Americans about the civic structures to a large degree, that's going to carry weight even though in at least, you know, uh, dozens of states, ballots as a matter of law are, can be received in California's case up to, you know, I think it's like 20 some odd days afterwards. If you go through the list, the Times is a very good breakdown on this. 22 states in District of Columbia all accept postmark ballots to arrive after election day. And it depends anywhere from one day to, I think California's the most general. Add to that, that forever, Military ballots, we have some uh, 1 million individuals serving overseas, some 3 million Americans living abroad, one out of three of them are military. And their ballots can be counted if they're mailed by election day. So it's very complicated, as I said, but no matter who wins, one of the things I'm really looking forward to is no more commercials for or against Max Rose, Nicole Malliotakis, Tom Kane Jr., Tom Malinowski, Nancy Goroff, Lee Zeldin, and a bunch of other people running for office. I wonder where all the money to pay for those ads is coming from. Well, I, I have no doubt that it's from the usual nefarious sources who bring us our Supreme Court justices, but I assure you that money will find another place to go, which is micro-targeting where certain flashpoints happen when in certain key states issues of discrepancy and controversy about local election law crop up. And so they'll fill that void 
and they'll drive that conversation. And so what we have here is because of the lack of national cohesion with a nice pandemic overlay, we have a, 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 a national moment where things are going to be very much based on the climate at the county level. And I was, we've told, we said this before, that America, uh, because of the corporatization of, of the news and the elimination of much of local reporting, uh, it's going to take a while to understand what's actually going on there. Now, the other aspect of this that is, um, that is new uh, and I've been, let's see, I'm 65, and I started being aware of politics when I was like eight. So like today on the way to the airport, I was almost run off the road by a Trump technical. You know what that is. It's like, it's kind of like um, something you'd see, um, you know, uh, from the Taliban, you know, with banners flying, where they drive you off the road. See, that's the thing they're doing now. I don't remember that. And why do you think they're doing that? Why are they? Why would they drive you off the road? Do you have a a Biden sign on your car? I do not. I submit that it's testosterone and young men looking for a fight. I think that there's a confluence. I mean, looking at the configura- a, a configuration of traffic where it happened to be uh, a merge into the airport, they were going. Uh, they had a mission, and so they were filled with zeal. And so it's that filled with zeal part, combined with fatigue about the pandemic and a sense of righteousness, that is dangerous. And we saw it expressed in Texas. And now we saw with the business over the weekend where a group of Trump technicals, a.k.a. kind of terrorists, um, ran a Biden campaign bus off the road. And the president, as he's uh, likely to do, uh, said he loved Texas and reinforced the behavior and told the FBI uh, that they shouldn't investigate, as they reportedly were going to do, that he should investigate Antifa. So that's yeah. how it's going to go. Well, it seems to me it's also a matter of who sets the agenda. For example, you've written a number of stories recently about local issues that I haven't seen it, uh, mentioned anywhere else, even though they're, they can be very important to a lot of people in our area. For example, the, the Supreme Court is scheduled to take up the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act on the 9th, just six days after tomorrow's election. And Vincent Variale, president of District Council 37's Local 3621, which represents emergency medical service officers, says that without the ACA, many of his members could lose access to health insurance. I thought most uh, unions provide health plans for their members. This is one of the most underreported issues, and it has national consequence. So it works like this. Everyone that is part of the first responder crew across the country, which is now a growing number of individuals, both volunteer and professional, who are EMTs, who are respiratory therapists, nurses, who are doctors, anyone that has anything to do with the pandemic, once they're exposed to the coronavirus and uh, bring it home to their family, because that's an aspect of this which is also underreported, all of those individuals, including the civil servants or private sector workers, there's many private sector workers who are doing this work. Nurses, especially. Pardon? 
Wouldn't nurses be among the first to lose their protection exactly. for pre-existing conditions? So they have a pre-existing condition. Exactly right. So with the striking down of ACA and the loss of the pre-existing conditions protection, then individuals who are in the front lines of this pandemic and already suffering, if they had about with the lingering consequences, would lose their health care coverage. And just as we don't hear enough about the thousand nurses and healthcare professionals that have died as a consequence of the pandemic and the failed national response, we don't hear about this component of this debate. This is a key question here, and it's something that does not get the attention required. And Mr. Varielli says that unlike firefighters and police officers, EMS workers don't have unlimited sick time and the access to health care that comes for those employees continuing to collect full salary while they convalesce. So what are their options? Well, so that that's right. This is, goes back to kind of a plantation system. Let's be honest. That's what we got here in New York City. I know it's a progressive. We have Mayor de Blasio. But uh, the reality is forever um, what the, the state of play has been that EMTs, FDNY, primarily women and people of color, um, make, uh, you know, like 60 percent of what firefighters do, who have historically been primarily male and white, and police officers and firefighters have unlimited sick time when it comes to something that happens at work. However, EMTs, who are second-class citizens, by the way this law is written, um, don't have unlimited sick time. So once they're out of a certain amount of time, they flip to workers' comp, end up getting turned out from the job, and are left with COBRA. Or a better option is the uh, Obamacare that's available through the exchange. Haven't the chairs of key city council committees and union leaders expressed concerns about the lack of transparency about the de Blasio administration's plans to bring back to their offices tens of thousands of workers who've been working remotely during the pandemic? Well, do we know when, that's going to, that, when they plan to do that? Well, here's the thing. We, we're hoping to get some more detail. The, what has surfaced, it was a October 19th Wall Street Journal piece, which um, was anonymously sourced, which suggested that the administration was hoping to return 25%. And it's important to say here, most of the city workforce has been working right along. Because if you're a mechanic that fixes fire trucks, if you're someone that works in the sewer system, there's no mailing it in, there's no working remotely. So what we're talking about is 25% of the tens of thousands of workers who can work remotely because they're doing some office function. And so this has kind of dribbled out. Uh, there's not been any clarity. Um, there's been no public meetings and uh, the chair of... Um, Labor and Civil Service, uh, Danique Miller and um, uh, Fernando Cabrera, who is chair of government ops, both want to see, uh, and actually Miller has a bill in, it'll be, it'll be hearings later this month, to provide some transparency and criteria and to have a, a benchmarking that sets rules for both the private and public sector in terms of standards of care for the workforce. Um, and then also the thing that's, that's uh, in my reporting there's a very weird kind of laissez-faire thing going on where if you're in management and you're buddy-buddy with the commissioner, you get to stay home and you're marked off as, you know, being excused. Whereas if you're a line worker, you know where your bottom is going to be. It's going to be in the street doing your job. 
And so there needs to be some kind of standard so that we just don't see people that are connected in management being able to manage their risk and working from home and then ordering other, other people to go out and uh, to put themselves at risk. There's got to be equity in all of this. Otherwise, they're just going to keep repeating um, and reaffirming the inequities that got us in this position in the first case, because we know that this disease is disproportionately affecting uh, people of color. Uh, since the pandemic has crippled New York City's economy, should we expect to see major layoffs because of the city's $9 billion budget deficit? Uh, aren't the, the municipal unions backing a bill introduced in Albany that offers an early retirement incentive of up to three years of additional pension credit to the thousands of, of civil servants who are at least 55 years of age and have logged 25 years of service or are otherwise eligible to retire? That's part of it, but everyone is holding um, their breath uh, in terms of what exactly is going to happen. Uh, in the short term, for the duration of this fiscal year, District Council 37, uh, the UFT, the teachers, um, the Uniform Fire Officers Association, all have um, offered a, a way, you know, I think it adds up to close to a billion dollars. In the case of what happened with the teachers, that was the case where they were due close to a billion dollars in back pay because Michael Bloomberg refused to negotiate a contract in good faith for close to a generation. And the resulting retro pay was supposed to be phased in, and the teachers, uh, to try to be cooperative, permitted the city to, to do it in stages. The mayor advised the promoter that he wasn't going to be able to make the payment. It went to arbitration. They split the difference. So teachers uh, took a $450 million hit, which will be made up down the line. Similarly, uh, DC 37, which is a huge 120,000 uh, workers in dozens of locals, they uh, for uh, let the city off the hook for about $160 million. It has to go into certain health and welfare funds. These are all cash management issues. But the mm -hmm. underlying question about the marginal status of public finance in general is not going away. Mayor de Blasio and Andrew Cuomo that disagree about so much actually are taking a very similar um, approach of when you see what happens with the election. The concern is that even assuming the best case for them, that um, Vice President Biden wins and the Democrats clear the Senate, uh, we're talking about months and months uh, before any kind of economic relief occurs. And if patterns continue to hold up with the additional lockdowns and the disease continuing to uh, create such a problem, we're going to see uh, the continued unraveling of the economy. And so that's why, um, mm. while we're kind of suspended in animation, the, the clock is ticking. And in fact, uh, because of what's happening, a lack of confidence, we're seeing the bond rating for both the city and state deteriorate, which means borrowing costs more money. So uh, it is, it's a perilous situation. And I, I read an interesting thing in one of your reports that there is a small tax that Wall Street traders are required to pay on every stock trade, but that New York State doesn't collect it. And Wall Street is being refunded the money. Yeah. It's sweetheart deal I, there? I I think I have to credit, uh, well, someone full stack from uh, Schenectady, wow. uh, leading the charges, and then our uh, Senator um, Sanders from, um, 
from New York, uh, from New York City, um, is trying to get this reversed. Um, this was something that was brought to, I think it was Ralph Nader and Joseph Stieglitz and um, James Henry, an economist, and a number of other folks knew who was on the book. So uh, just to set the scene a bit, in 1905, um, a Republican administration was, you know, $4 million light off uh, for those halcyon days, the single-digit budget deficits. And so uh, the antitrust atmospherics were part of politics in New York, of course. So they decided to put up, I think it's like a quarter of a cent or some tiny, minuscule micro-tax. And, of course, the New York Times predicted it would be the end of the world, that Wall Street would leave for New Jersey. And then a few months later, the gray lady had to admit, not so great at the time, that, uh, no, it seems to be working very well. And, indeed, for years, for decades, this money went into the public coffers to support um, the well-being of the state of New York, where Wall Street was based. And then in 1981, um, Governor Kerry and Mayor Beam uh, thought that it was, you know, Wall Street was looking feeble to them, I guess. And so they decided to send the money back to Wall Street. And we've been doing that ever since. And I think um, Solomon Steck told me the last 10 years, we've given back to Jamie Dimon and his starving crew $138 billion just for 10 years. They need it, you know. Wow. And I, and I bank at Chase. Um, you're, listening, <laughs> you're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming at WBAI.org. My guest is Bob Henley, who is a regular contributor to our show and always has interesting things to tell us about that we don't hear about much other pretty much anywhere else haven't there been behind the scenes pressures from the white house on both the u.s centers for disease control and prevention and the food and drug administration to align their findings with mr trump's efforts to downplay the virus and speed approval of a vaccine um he's been talking about operation warp speed for a while now well and it <clears throat> i mean i think that uh, we we need uh, some kind of commission to take a look at all this once the air is cleared of the present malady. Um, when you well, we don't know who's going to win the election. So I know, but at some point down the line, we've got to get to the bottom of it because from the very beginning, we've covered some of this ground before. We had a CDC which had been known as being kind of like the platinum standard for public health around the world very much in the service of this administration. And it started very early on with the business with um, the N95 masks, right? So they sent an advisory, as I'm sure uh, listeners who were in the healthcare field know, an N95 mask is supposed to be worn uh, for each clinical encounter up to four hours and then thrown away. Uh, the CDC with an eye towards inventory and trying to cover the White House's backside uh, told healthcare professionals that they should adopt the N95 and take it to them back and forth in their lunch pail for a week or so. At the time, the New York Nurses Association warned that two things would happen. One would be that their members would die because they would be uh, coming to coronavirus, and the hospitals, like Elmhurst, would become a vector for the virus we were fighting. Both things happened and continue to happen. Uh, and so scroll forward to this business with the pressure 
Um, and there's been so much more. I mean, those things you mentioned is, is part of it, but there's been a, just across the board pressure on career civil servants. Uh, and another example would be, for instance, OSHA. Uh, Rachel Maddow did a lot of great reporting on this, um, showing how um, uh, the uh, CDC basically just uh, did anything that industry wanted when it came to the meatpacking plant. And the meatpacking plants actually got the president to put the War Production Defense uh, Production Act in place, something he was uh, reluctant to do for things like the PPE, personal protective equipment. And so they actually were able to run roughshod these meat plants where over local health officials who wanted them to close down when their um, uh, facilities actually became a source of coronavirus. And so and now, you know, and now the president is hinting that he may fire Anthony Fauci after the election uh, because he's been critical of the uh, administration's positions. He, he's calling it political. I mean, the, well, Trump I mean, is calling it political. Well, I mean, I think the thing this all goes back to um, you know, the, the built in thing. We see it with uh, Stephen Atlas, the doctor who's been brought in because that's the the guy that kind of uh, a Fox creation uh, who does, is not an epidemiologist, uh, basically giving um, cover, air cover to the notion of herd immunity. This is something that came that we know that Boris Johnson was an acolyte of. It came out of a kind of Malthusian equation um, yeah. that better to take a hit. And then, you know, that somehow people would march on and we'd lose the people and have a moment of silence for them, but they'd be a down payment on prosperity. The reality is, however, much messier. Um, the question of uh, immunity is open-ended. We don't know to what degree about with this gives one immunity. And the consequences of even um, having uh, crossing paths with it, for at least a third of the people, have long-term health consequences. Now, of course, the other piece of this that is just not covered, because, again, the civil servants and the EMTs and the nurses, respiratory therapists, they're hidden figures to use a phrase, like they don't exist. So in terms of the, the, the cost of this is we're churning through these people as a consequence of this notion that we just need to open up the economy uh, and, and disregard the, the consequences of COVID because on the other side of it is some um, uh, utopia where we're gonna be immune from it. All of that is non-existent. It's not, there's no science to that at all. It but is, Boris Johnson has like, changed his tune. The United States government has not. Uh, on, a, right, on, a right, city, on a city right. level, Mayor de Blasio and his aides offered assurances that the city wouldn't give a coronavirus vaccine to employees without doing their own vetting beyond that done by the federal government. Why wasn't Gloria Middleton, the, the president of the Communication Workers of America Local 1180, convinced by that? Well, no, I, that was the sequence that I was, I spoke with her and then I, I had a chance to ask the mayor about it. So the, she was just saying in general, um, and I did a survey, called around, because one of the things that was disconcerting was the way that both Governor Cuomo and, uh, and even, of course, Trump and then de Blasio, the way they talked about rolling out the vaccine. And again, the Governor Cuomo and de Blasio did spend some time and actually each day, there were a few days where each one did their own thing, and this is how they're going to go going about doing it. And they would mention that, of course, the first responders uh, 
uh, and uh, healthcare professionals would be first to get this vaccine. And nowhere in there was there any sense um, self-awareness of what it would be like for these first responders and healthcare professionals who are going to be first to belly up for a vaccine produced by um, a system that has been totally corrupted by politics. And so um, I, that's, I called Gloria and several other um, union leaders and got their sense. And then also, before I did ha- get a chance to ask the mayor directly about this during one of the press avails, uh, a very important study came out from the New York um, NYU Global Public Health School that is working with TWU Local 100, which represents all the subway and, and bus workers through the uh, MTA system. And it was the first of its kind occupational health survey. And they learned a lot of things. The people, the researchers found that um, more people got exposed or came down with coronavirus than previously believed. Uh, I think their, their survey indicates one in four. And also that there was a lack of confidence in, you know, on the part of the subway workers who, again, would be on the front lines and probably uh, would be in line to get this vaccine. 32% said they wouldn't take it. 31% said they would. And, and the balance were undecided. So that's, that's about the same problem. as the rest of the general public, isn't it? Pardon? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And I think, so that's when I, I asked the mayor about this, um, and he said, well, of course, and Cuomo said this too, that New York State would, would do its own due diligence, and certainly, and then I believe de Blasio said that he and his leadership team would also commit to take the vaccine. Um, but I do think this raises the question about the long-term damage, I mean, no matter what happens with the election, the and this was this was a, this was working for a while in the American consciousness. We saw the pushback on vaccines in general, and before COVID, we had this crisis related to other vaccines and inoculations that became a hot button issue. And so um, there's been this, and Trump is a symptom of it. I don't think he's the cause of it, but he certainly is the most visible symptom of it. This, uh, this lack of cohesion and, and, and this feeling that authorities can't be trusted. And to, to be fair, uh, the authorities and officials have done have their own, their own selves to blame. I mean, one of the things, I pointed this out to Mayor de Blasio when he was talking about the vaccine. There was this workforce that he wants to you know, take this vaccine, these are the same people, the same trusting people, that responded after 9-11, after being told by EPA Administrator and former Governor Christy Todd Whitman that the air was safe to breathe in lower Manhattan, even though the EPA had scientific information, which they suppressed, that it indeed was dangerous and the asbestos levels were not safe. And so there's a calculation done then, and I'm sure, you know, this was something uh, Rudy Giuliani was mayor at the time, that, and this is going to sound familiar, that it was more important to send a sign of strength to the world and opening up Wall Street than to give the first responders and the essential workers doing that work a fair shake. And we're seeing See, that sounds familiar. It does. This time, that Same thing that we're hearing back. today. Exactly. So are you suggesting that the increasingly partisan nature of the debate about the pandemic and how to deal with it has undermined public confidence in any vaccine that the federal government might offer, which was, I, by the I way, supposed that, to be available by today, according to the, the president. And of course, we're right. now hearing from Pfizer that 
that will not happen. Pfizer's chief uh, executive said it would be nearly impossible to have a vaccine this soon. Well, in essence, it's interesting because we're used to thinking of corporations as being nefarious, but in this case, they've kind of been a break on um, Donald Trump because they're not fools and they know that, uh, you know, they could be vulnerable to all kinds of lawsuits if they cut corners on it. And, you know, we, we have precedents in this country for rollouts that didn't go well with vaccines. And so... But I think that this undermines this inability to collectively trust is something that I mean, it's not you just can't pin it on politics, because if I look at the arc of my own lifetime, look at the institutions. Let's just take a few, shall we? The Boy Scouts of America, the Catholic Church. They're all declaring bankruptcy now. (laughs) You see a pattern? Well, we have to take a little break here. Uh, You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Today's Leonard Lopate at Large. He covers national local politics, economics, and, and policy for public radio, for Salon, for the chief leader, other news organizations. You can find him on Twitter at Stuck Nation. Uh, you can also uh, read him in the, the Chief Leader and uh, Salon and other publications. And in fact, you have a large piece, uh, an extensive piece in Salon that asks the question. Was our current national misery all presaged by Donald Trump's spectacular collapse in Atlantic City? <laughs> well, and I did that originally in the age of aggregation. Um, it, that was a, a, a deeply researched piece, and I did it for Insider NJ, uh, and then mm-hmm. Salon picked it up. Uh, yeah, I I read uh, it in Salon. Right. The um, I was building on the great work that's been done by Tim O'Brien, uh, who wrote Trump Nation, was at the New York Times at the time when he took on Donald Trump, taking, challenging him about his net worth and endured a, a, a very fractious lawsuit, which he prevailed in. And then my colleague, uh, the late, uh, I much miss Wayne Barrett, who I work with as a village mm-hmm. voice. And of course, David K. Johnston, I've gotten to know a little bit since, who is all, favorite, uh, all former guests on this show. I, and they were great course. guests, all of them. Exactly. And so the thing is that in real time through the 80s, they were describing um, up through 2000, I think uh, O'Brien's book was 2005, but they were describing how uh, Atlantic City and the state of New Jersey, which had created Atlantic City in the gambling franchise, had looked the other way uh, to make it possible for Donald Trump to bend the rules, to break the rules uh, in a way that uh, permitted him to dominate um, the uh, the industry and then to crash and burn. Um, in and a you way note that, that we, although we don't know who's going to win the election, we do know what's scheduled nine days 
uh, or 10 days from now, when Trump's original Atlantic City Casino, the Trump Plaza, is slated to be imploded. Uh, Atlantic right, City's right. mayor, Marty Small, is auctioning off the chance to be the person who pushes the button that brings down right. that rotting structure for charity. So, so is right. it being demolished well, simply January because it's a rotting structure? Well, on January 29th, it was the first in the uh, the, uh, the 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 crown jewels of uh, Mr. Trump in Atlantic City, and it fell into decrepitude. And um, why did it fall into uh, decrepitude? Was it well, he had like, he had did he favor his other three casinos? He had four casinos at one point. Yeah, at one point he had four. Um, the what happened here is that it. The New Jersey uh, killed the Golden Goose. There was a brief period where uh, Atlantic City was taking in more money than Las Vegas, but uh, New Jersey was greedy. Um, and what I in the piece it goes through how the the very people that created the Casino Control Commission ended up going to work for Donald Trump. So he acquired them like one would butterflies in a cigar box. And so even at one point, he had Governor Florio for two years serve on a board of one of uh, Trump's uh, corporations. And I interviewed uh, Governor Florio about what he described as a very unpleasant experience. Um, and, you know, I, I interviewed uh, uh, former Senator Bob Torricelli, who, uh, whose own rise from uh, the House to the Senate happened right in the midst of Donald Trump ascension. And Neither of them come across all that well in, in your telling of the story. Well, I mean, yeah, it's just um, I, I mean, in Florio, to, at least with Florio, it was uh, something that was in public record. And, you know, it was something where he pointed out that his administration had wanted to limit the number of casinos. After he left, the state pushed the envelope and never delivered on the things that they promised in terms of having that money go to uh, help Atlantic City. Atlantic City um, suffered from this extraction situation where all this money came in and then came out. And all sorts of small businesses were devastated by the bankruptcy where Donald Trump uh, uh, privatized uh, the profits and socialized the, the debts and left people holding the bag for millions and millions of dollars. You know, some people were just, their lives were destroyed by the guy. And the state of New Jersey facilitated that, uh, primarily because and David K. Johnson makes done a lot of breakthrough work on this. New Jersey was, was trying to prepare itself to withstand the temptations of falling the way of uh, the mafia control in, uh, that had happened in Las Vegas. And in the process of that, they... Did, they did not. They left the door open for this kind of this kind of uh, uh, wise guy wannabe. And well, they were the also concerned way. about the image of New Jersey based on the popularity of the Sopranos. New Jersey well, was seen as all, a, as the state where where the mob uh, thrived. Well, well the, I would say that there was this interesting uh, history because in the fifties and sixties, actually. I would say New Jersey was kneecapped because of the news reports that were coming out of New Jersey. Life magazine had this huge spread in 1967 that showed that basically the mob owned law enforcement, including they had a one uh, story with photographs, including a state trooper they had acquired and was renting for $7,000 a month. Uh, renting a state trooper? A, yeah, well, that's, and we do elected officials too. It's party rental, whatever you need. Uh -huh. Pay to play. 
but the thing about it is that that soprano period, I tell you, is like when we kind of became proudest. There is this thing, and I have another piece about this today, about the connections between Roy Cohn and Roger Stone and, and Donald Trump. We kind of like that bully. There is something that is, and, and it comes out of the, the soil of Watergate, right? Like we, we like, we, we say we don't like Jake Gordon Liddy, but, you know, we're fascinated. And so we've given rise to this, this, this kind of character. So you have a kind of, uh, you know, Jersey Housewives, you know, and this idea that there's a certain legitimacy in the last 15 some odd years that have, that's been extended to the mafia as a, as a kind of, you know, as kind of a glamour. And I think that's that's part of like this broad based deterioration. Now, are all of Trump's casinos vacant now? Uh, the, the one that's going to be demolished? Is as you said, is pretty much falling apart, and it's right in the well, heart of, of the the, the boardwalk. Right, right. Carl Icahn owns the land. The casinos um, are all going through a different iteration, and certainly, um, it is uh, going to be a a smaller Atlantic City. It's like any place of public accommodation in the midst of the pandemic. It's dealing with the smaller footprint of just uh, foot traffic reduce reductions of foot traffic. And then also um, there's been such a proliferation of gaming. I mean, this gets into the other question about how uh, the government increasingly uh, in, in the throes of, or, you know, under the suasion of the wealthy and multinationals will go out of its way to avoid from taxing the super wealthy multinational corporations, lest they have a bad hair day, but finds any number of ways to come up with, um, coming up with pernicious things like gambling and lotteries. I mean, you, you and I are of a certain age. You do remember that the government used to put people in jail for running numbers, right? So you <laughs> say that uh, if the regulators see the success of someone as central to the state's economic development, that's an example of what can best be described as regulatory capture? Right, right. And that phrase came to mind after reading through Senator Whitehouse's book uh, with, that, uh, with that title, where he goes, uh, and it was really quite topical because he looks at how um, Lewis Powell went on to become the Supreme Court justice, but uh, was a, a major corporate lawyer and helped the Chamber of Commerce chart this strategy for the business community to get a hold of the law as an institution. So while we were registering people to vote, uh, the pinstripes were coming up with this strategy, which we are now living with. And so what you have is uh, a situation where corporations um, have basically, uh, with the exception of some great public interest people in the law, and there are many of them, but by and large, if you look at where law schools are at, um, they serve major corporations and they churn folks out who, who um, many of whom uh, the priority is making corporations as wealthy as possible. And so that would be well and good if they just were in the private sector. But what's happened is this is metastasized into uh, the nation's highest court throughout the appellate division, the state courts. And so now, um, and we see it time and time again, where whether it be consumer law, whether it be uh, gender equity, whether it be workplace discrimination, whether it be occupational safety, 
all those concerns are a lose when it comes to the profit motive. That is what is now driving much of the jurisprudence in the United States. So you write that New Jersey's Casino Control Commission and the Casino Reinvestment Development Authority and the Division of Gaming Enforcement went out of their way to accommodate Mr. Trump. Uh, for example, no one is supposed to own more than three of Atlantic City's 12 casinos, but at one time he was permitted to have four. How did they explain allowing that exception? Well, and that was just, I mean, there was some crazy things. And even if you broke the rules and they found out about it, they made it okay. Best example would be he was going to, um, he was always operating very, uh, with a lot of debt. So he was leveraged. And so he had a lot of bond payments. to make. So he was going to come up short early on in his career. And so his father, Fred, uh, not a disinterested party, bought three some odd million dollars worth of chips and then just never cashed them in. Is that legal? And so, no, not at all. But of course, presented to the, they, I think they fined Trump $30,000, but anyone else, they would have stripped him of the life. I mean, this was, this is such a pattern. Like I say, this is so well documented in David K. Johnson's book, in Wayne's writing, and in Tim O'Brien stuff. I mean, in essence, it really shows you that once a certain amount of money gets behind something and all the advertising, um, even with um, the support of uh, news organizations, uh, guys like Trump can prosper. Because he was a celebrity? Well, because I think that it, I, the combination of the, and it's Bob Torsani made this point, there was a point at which he did have thousands and thousands of people that he was employing. And there comes a point where, uh, for, for politicians, you know, they're, they're going to stand up. I think at one point during a speech, uh, that, uh, I came across, he gave, uh, in Atlantic city, you know, he likened it to, uh, New Jersey elected officials, uh, said Torricelli needed to step up and protect the casinos in industry, just like the oil, uh, just like uh, their counterparts in the oil states protect the oil industry. So, you know, I mean, of course, once you go back and read this stuff and go back and spend some time with history, some bizarre irony show. So in the 1990s, there was an effort by, you know, Native Americans were asserting themselves and they were making an effort to get into gaming. And uh, we had a situation where actually Torricelli was denouncing Native gaming and trying to throw roadblocks in the way of it on behalf of Mr. Trump, and was saying, but he but he that, claimed it was because the the Native Americans didn't have to pay taxes, and Trump did. Although we'll go into that in just a moment. That's the irony. That's <laughs> the irony. As an up, that's right. They were cheating the system and denying an upstanding businessman like Donald Trump a tax paying. I mean, exactly. Mayor Small says, quote, his property started out as gems and he let them fall into disrepair for the sake of making a dollar. He hurt so many little mom and pop shops and small businesses. Well, why would he allow them to fall into disrepair if if they were succeeding? No, well, so what happened is the um, he orchestrated his own exit. So he came up with every time he ran into a corner, he was able to get more and more borrowing. Then he came up with, you know, a publicly traded company and found a way of stranding that debt with stockholders. 
he kept reinventing himself and then pulling cash out without getting caught. And he was enabled by all sorts of banks because there's a certain point where, you know, if you have a large outstanding loan, if it's big enough, it's the bank's problem. And he was aware of that. And he played it to the hilt. So the mayor says Trump took advantage of the bankruptcy laws and made a lot of money in Atlantic City and then just got out. Right, right. It's it's very much like the, the what happens with mining companies. It's the same model where you strip it bare of everything that might be profitable and then you leave the corpse. That is kind of the American way. My guest on today's London Lopate at Large is Bob Penley, who's a regular on this show. And we talk about politics and related matters when he visits us. Uh, this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Leonard Lopate. Uh, the uh, Casino Control Commission rejected Baron Hilton's application for a gaming license right. because of his relationship with a Hollywood based labor lawyer who had alleged mafia ties. Uh, well, how come that didn't apply? to Donald Trump, who had uh, a number of people uh, in his circle who had alleged mafia ties. Well, what's the best, um, this was stuff that was written about, right? So when David K. Johnson and Wayne Barrett were doing this, and it was getting published, the Casino Control Commission, well, it's investigative arm. The well, it was getting published by them, but I wasn't reading about it in the newspapers or seeing it, well, anything it was, about it on CNN or MSNBC or Fox. Oh, no, no, of course not. And as, as a matter of fact, what you have is Barbara Walters talking about this young, brash young man reinventing the nature of the economy itself, repeated over and over again, and entertained by, you know, all of the luminaries of the time who, who he, he would invite. Um, you know, it's kind of like, like Epstein without the porn, right? It's the same kind of uh, collective circumstance where people all benefit from the transaction except for the public. But to the point about the issue about what happened with Hilton, he was able to, Trump was able to exploit the way that they uh, dinged um, Hilton's application. Now, Hilton had already built a, a, a facility ready to go. And so Trump was able to step in. And then I mean, he bought time. the building. Right, right. He was at, and I, under, I think Hilton was under duress because it's like you have to get a casino license. And if you're not going to get the casino license, you're, it's kind of like a captive asset. Then the other piece here was that what we what we know is that <clears throat> from from reporting that we had uh, Roger Stone, uh, I guess the provenance of it is a very good Washington Post reporting on this. Uh, Roger Stone, basically, after after his Watergate, you know, he had a, a minor role. Then he worked on the raging campaign, crossed paths with Mike Deaver. Deaver gives him a Rolodex, which includes um, some names, including Roy Cohen. Stone goes to meet Roy Cohen um, and who's in the company of a well-known mobster. And then Cohen suggests that Stone, back in the 80s, get in touch with Trump. and so. But the thing is, in, in the casino application, Trump made no reference to the fact that Roy Cohn, who was someone who's already had been a person of interest uh, with, uh, with law enforcement, uh, didn't mention the relationship, nor the fact that Cohn had represented Fred and Donald in a lawsuit brought by the federal government for housing discrimination. So 
also represented a, a fair number of mobsters right. over the years. Exactly. Roy Cohn. Right, right. And Which Baron Hilton's right. lawyer had done, and, uh, and he was denied his license right. as a result. Well, that's just one. There's probably several where, and it's funny because the Division of Gaming Enforcement, um, and in, in this story, an insider and Jay, all these things are hyperlinked. At the time, Division of Gaming Enforcement actually did a review of all the allegations in um, Wayne's book, particularly. And you can see it was an internal document um, that was, I think it surfaced in 2016 uh, by Fast Company. But uh, it's fascinating because when you read it, you'll see that the investigators are like, yeah, we missed it. Somebody should ask Trump about it. And there's like several instances like that where the investigators concede that it wasn't in the application to begin with. And so this is, and to a large degree, this is what kind of created, permitted Donald Trump to get the traction. Now, you know, we know that he was doing something similar and successfully he played New York City's real estate market, but at least in the form of Mayor Koch, he ran to some resistance, right? But not so in New Jersey. So that was a 41-page 1992 investigative report that had been produced by New Jersey's Division of Gaming Enforcement that offered a detailed account of the agency's follow-up on 15 allegations. And yet, again, I ask, why do you think it didn't get more attention in the press? Well, because in uh, just as someone who's worked in this business, um, you know, Particularly like in New Jersey, and we, we do have this, I, it's probably true, you know, any place, the local industries always get a pass. Um, I'll give you another example, the telecommunications industry, right? Um, the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, one of the things that Bob Troy Sully said that, that had, you know, uh, a ring of truth to it was uh, he pointed out that um, New Jersey was such a small state. And, you know, in some ways, in terms of with the concentration of politics in so few hands, that large industries that are central to the state's well-being, and on the list, he put insurance, utilities and pharmaceuticals and casino gaming can't be effectively regulated. And that's a fair statement. I mean, that's kind of, and I think that that can be true, really, uh, in terms of the whole United States, because we've seen increasingly that the bigger the industry is, the harder the time this country has regulating it because those interests have co-opted and are renting our politics. Now you live in New Jersey and uh, I wonder why New Jersey has a, uh, right now has a higher infection rate than New York state. Uh, despite the fact that it looks like it's been working hard to, <laughs> to uh, control all the things that, that New York state is, is uh, trying to control. Well, New, New Jersey is one of the most highly congested states in terms of density. Uh, it also, um, I, I think it was, I think Governor Murphy was a little more aggressive in opening back up again. Hmm. I think that um, I think that the state also, as as dense as it is and concentrated, it is its media landscape is kind of diffuse. So things can happen at a local level that people are kind of oblivious about, and that's a deterioration of local coverage. So, you know, you can have, um, I mean, there were some um, some jurisdictions, and this has to do with, I know speaking with the public unions, for instance, in New Jersey, they were running into a situation where some officials at the county level 
we're Trump acolytes. And we're like, no, you're not going to wear a mask. I don't believe in any of it. And these were people that had official standing. I do think that in New York State, um, uh, New York City, as big and huge as it is, uh, it has a kind of centralization and focus, which gives it an advantage in terms of um, uh, bringing kind of uh, kind of discipline to public responses. In New Jersey, you're talking about 565 municipalities spread over 21 counties with very diverse politics. We have no time left, but I was just wondering how much can Donald Trump be blamed for the sad current state of Atlantic City and how much uh, is, of the reason is that uh, the three quarters of uh, Atlantic City's population is minority? It's a confluence of all of that. And it has to do with disinvestment by um, by the state. There was a point at which the Casino Redevelopment Commission started sending uh, the money that they were getting out of state to other places as a honeypot to as a political honeypot for other jurisdictions. And so it's a combination of the exploitation by Donald Trump and the fact that the power structure, I call it revolving door itis. Um, a lot of public officials saw it as an opportunity to make themselves very comfortable. And comfortable we, have to, we have to leave it there, Bob. I'm sorry. All right. Robert Henley, right. a regular on our show. We'll see you in a few weeks. Take care. And that, bring, and that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to our program and like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes and anywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to comment on any of our shows or just want to say hello, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I'd like to take just a few minutes to ask for your support for this station. We are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 right now to keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. WBAI is 100% dependent on listener donations. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Located at Large, or even if you've discovered our in-depth one-hour interviews, why not just step up right now by going online to give to WBAI.org or calling 516-620-3602 to play a part in keeping the show and the station on the air. And one great way to support WBAI without having to plunk down a lot of money at one time is to become a BAI buddy. Listeners who contribute $10 or more each month to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do on this show. Whatever level you're comfortable donating with, the important thing is that you do it right now to keep this great experiment going. And my great thanks to everyone who's stepped up to support the show and the station because we rely on the generosity of listeners like you. Uh, in case you uh, did write down the number, it is 516-620-3602 or go to give to wbai.org and become a BAI buddy right now. And we hope you'll tune in again tomorrow when Jesse Wegman of the New York Times editorial board will discuss his new book, Let the People Pick the President, The Case for Abolishing the Electoral College. Whatever your thoughts are on the Electoral College, I hope that everyone um, who's listening has or is planning to vote in this historic election. We'll see you tomorrow.